Let me invite you to open to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. We'll read the whole psalm, but focus on verses 1 to 2. I mentioned Wednesday night at prayer meeting how I had abandoned my original plans. I planned to rework and re-preach four, I guess you could call COVID shutdown sermons that I had preached to a largely empty room. And I did that for a couple and then changed my plans. We're going to leave the other two be. But I settled here on Psalm 127. Thank you for those who prayed uh, for the Lord's guidance in that. Uh, This is a short psalm that I trust is very familiar to most of us and precious to most of us. I've wanted for some time actually to preach on it, so here we go. We're preaching, and we pray that by God's help, our meditations in this psalm will be fruitful tonight. I want you to take note first of the inspired heading or title here, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. This is one of a collection of 15 psalms with this title, A Song of Ascents, from Psalms 120 to 134, 15 of them there. And Psalm 127 is one of only two psalms that have this inscription of Solomon. The other one would be Psalm 72. Now, the Hebrew could be rendered either of or by Solomon, saying that Solomon is the one who wrote this, or it could also be rendered to or for Solomon, that it was written for him. So a strong argument, if you were to go back and look at Psalm 72, the other one that says of Solomon, you could make a strong argument there that it was written by David and for his son Solomon. But when we look here at Psalm 127, it's a little bit harder to decide between these two options. It's entirely possible that David or somebody else wrote this psalm to or for Solomon. So Matthew Henry takes this view as as well as others. Uh, Solomon had many building projects, and most importantly, the temple or the house of God. So verse 1, the beginning of verse 1 there, unless the Lord builds the house, that could be David's advice. You know, that was David's passion. He wanted to build the house. It could be his advice to his son. That's certainly possible, but I think it's more likely Solomon wrote it. So of Solomon, that's the more typical way to render the Hebrew. You see all over the Psalms of David, and that refers to David as the author. Another thing is we know that Solomon wrote many, many songs, not just the Proverbs, but songs, 1,005 to be exact from 1 Kings 4.32, we know that. And then finally, before we read here, take note of the structure. It's simple. It's a two-part structure, verses 1 to 2, our focus. And then in verses 3 to 5, there is a shift. And there, there's more of a focus immediately on the home, the family. So let's read this psalm, a song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, 
The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's again seek the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for meeting with us. And we trust you are here by your spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as we now open your word and seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. Give us help and send your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. At different times in my life, this psalm has struck me in different ways. So it was verse 1 that the Lord used to strike me about the time of the end of high school, beginning of college. As I was just starting to read the scriptures for the first time, really seriously reading along with another friend. And I remember when he called me, he had read this too. And the Lord uses both to strike us. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. A few years later, as I was in college and as I was learning to habitually burn the candle at both ends, it was verse 2 that the Lord used to strike me in regard to neglecting sleep. And then a little bit later, as Kati and I have begun to build a family, it's verses 3 to 5 that the Lord has struck me with as I look at this precious little song. There's challenges and lessons here for everyone in every stage of life. There's things here that I can start to teach my children even now. And there's lessons here for the oldest and the wisest among us. God's given us this little psalm in order to help us navigate life well, to navigate life wisely. In fact, it's rightly classified as a wisdom psalm as well as the following Psalm 128. It's a wisdom psalm. That means it's aiming to show us how to live life well and for the glory of God. How to be faithful in every aspect of life. And not just in our waking hours, but also in our sleeping. All of life. So what I want to do as we look at this is to look at these first two verses and briefly open them up, try to understand something of what is being said. So let's look firstly at verses 1 to 2, a brief exposition here of the text. Because before we draw out lessons, we need to understand the basic message here. In a very real sense, this psalm takes a lifetime to exegete. The more we live, the more we understand and appreciate its lessons if we're growing in wisdom. If I preach this in five years, I trust I will have further insights and greater understanding. That might even be a good thing to do. Every five years or so, I'll come back to this and we can compare how the Lord has shown me more things in his word and has grown me in wisdom. Might do that. The main principles given in verse one, using two different pictures, simple pictures, very much like we saw this morning, simple, earthy pictures. These aren't as earthy, but the first picture is building a house. You see it there again. Unless the Lord builds the house, 
they labor in vain who build it. Literally, if Yahweh or Jehovah does not build a house, in vain they labor the builders of it. The second picture Solomon paints is that of keeping watch over a city. And he does this using the exact same structure as in the first line. So there again, you see, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake or stands guard in vain. Literally, if Yahweh does not watch a city, in vain he keeps watch, a watchman. These are just two activities, building and watching, which are used to illustrate the main point of this text. The basic principle, the instruction and wisdom that were given by God here is the same in both of these pictures of building and of watching. And it is that apart from God's working, all of our working to whatever end or purpose that labor might be will be in vain. It will be empty without God. Every activity will come to nothing without God's activity, and namely his activity of blessing. God must bless it. The success or failure of all that we do ultimately depends on God's blessing. Do you believe that? That the success or failure of everything you do in life ultimately depends not on your wisdom, not on your skill, not on your experience or strength or whatever it might be, but on God's blessing. Do you live and labor and sleep as if that is true? So naturally in our pride, we put too much confidence in our own labors. So we need this reminder. It's a simple reminder, but we need it. We need to be reminded that our efforts alone cannot ensure success. Our best plans, our most arduous labors will be fruitless without God's blessing. So however hard you work, it will be in vain is the language that's used if the Lord does not bless it. Now, that language there, the word translated in vain, refers to that which is empty or useless. For example, worship that is merely outward. God says, Isaiah 1.13, bring no more vain offerings, empty offerings. Or chastening that does not lead to repentance. Jeremiah 2.30, in vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. It didn't, the chastening had no good effect on them. It was in vain. Or medicine that does not cure. Jeremiah 46.11, in vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. So it is with all that we do apart from the Lord's blessing. It's vain. It's empty. I want us to think for a moment about these two pictures of building and of watching. The building of a house had unique application to Solomon as the king, and in particular as David's royal son. It applied to the building of God's house, and as you know, God's house was often a reference to the temple the temple of the Lord. It also applied to the building of the royal house or the royal dynasty. Recall 2 Samuel 7. 
that promise. David wanted to build a house for God. God says, David, I will build you a house. And it was a promise to build David's royal dynasty, a promise that pointed ultimately to Christ, David's greater son. So there's an application that's unique here to Solomon in building the house of the Lord, but also in building the dynasty, the house of David. There's also a literal application to the building of an actual house. Building a house, unless the Lord builds a house, an actual structure, then it's in vain. But from this, we can draw a broader application to any of our labors, anything we might labor to build, even if that's a business or a career. But we can also expand that to whatever our hands or our minds find to do. So this has a very broad application. But notice also that there's a special application in this psalm. And verses 3 to 5 clinch this for us. But it is the building or the raising of a family. We already see that in the use of house, which can sometimes be understood as home or household. And then when we have the reference in verses 3 to 5 to children, we see that that is part of the mind of God with this psalm, to have reference to the building of a family, to our homes. So it's not just random or something to be surprised about when all of a sudden in verse 3, God is speaking of the blessing of children. It's because we're talking about building a house, which could be building our families, our home life. So we're already, I hope, starting to see how relevant this scripture is in our daily lives, in all that we do. But this second picture of watching helps us to see this even more. It deals with, as one man says, one of our most universal preoccupations, security. Deals with one of our most universal preoccupations, security. So for Solomon, he no doubt thought of a city that he had to protect, Jerusalem. So for him, there was a specific application. For us, we might think of the security of our loved ones who are under our roof. We might think of the security of one another as we gather for worship. We might think of the security of our city, of our state, or nation. Anything that we might want to protect or anyone that we might want to protect, this falls under the umbrella of this text. It applies to this as well. Security. So in sum, this little psalm really deals with the main issues of life with some of them at least, with all that we labor to do, with our security, and with the building of our families. It's a simple message, and it is this, that everything in the end is vain apart from the Lord. God could have just said that, but he knows how hard it is for us to remember that and live in light of that. So he gives it to us in language that drives that message home. Everything is in vain apart from the Lord. Now that's true on what we could call a micro level as we're looking at all the little parts of our life. But it's true on the macro level, our entire life, that our whole life 
ultimately is in vain apart from the Lord. So there is a message here also for unbelievers, primarily for those who are walking with the Lord. But I want to speak to those of you who are not trusting in Christ. You're laboring, you're building, maybe you have your career in mind, other things that you want to do, you're planning, you're thinking, you have all of these things in mind that you want to do. But let me ask you, where is the Lord in that? If the Lord is not in your life blessing you, and that is mainly giving you the gift of salvation, then ultimately your life will be in vain. So there's a message here for you. Apart from Christ, outside of Christ, there's no true blessing. You might be prosperous. You might be very rich. You might enjoy this life. You might go to the grave thinking everything is just fine, but it won't be. Apart from Christ, outside of him, then there's no true blessing. There's no life. There's no peace. No reconciliation with God. And so it is a call to abandon self-reliance, to abandon self-will, to abandon self-love, to abandon living for yourself and to live for the Lord. In verse 2, Solomon paints another picture. So we saw those two pictures in verse 1. There's another picture that's painted in verse 2. And it's something like a detail. You know, if you have a diagram of the human body, and there's then a detail of the eye, and you're zooming in on the eye. That's what we're doing here. He's going to zoom in on a builder who is building, and what we see is that he is frantically, yet in vain, building, laboring. A person who labors long and sleeps little is the picture that we have here. Look at verse 2 again. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. It's a picture all too familiar to many of us. Literally, it's starting early to rise, delaying to sit, eating the bread of toils. And this bread of toils, it's food gained by the pains or the sorrows of ceaseless labor. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's not, it's not people who might stay up late and get up early to do other things to fritter away their time, but it's people who are saying, I must labor, I have to do this work, and therefore I'm going to minimize sleep in order to maximize my labor. That's what we're talking about here. People who do this, we who do this, as if the success of our labors depend entirely upon our own activity. And as if sleep were just a necessary evil, as if sleep were a hindrance to progress and success and to whatever goals we might have in mind and not one of God's good gifts. But that's precisely what the Lord is saying to us here through Solomon. When we live like this, what we see in verse 2, When we live like this, we are denying a good gift of God. Not only are we denying our God-ordained limits, 
but the good gift of sleep, that God is holding out to us, to his beloved, to those whom he loves. He, he gives it to them. It's a gift. He's holding it out, and we can refuse it. That's why Solomon adds that, for so he gives his beloved sleep. So he's getting up early, he's going to bed late, he's eating the bread of anxious toils of ceaseless labor And then he says, for so he gives his beloved sleep. I just want to mention very quickly two translation issues. We're not going to unpack them. But this this phrase, for so, could also be translated thus or even truly. Truly, truly he gives to his beloved sleep. And then sleep here could be translated in sleep. As in, he gives to his beloved in sleep. So it's answering the question, well, when does the Lord give to his beloved? He gives to his beloved in their sleep. And that's a powerful picture. And it's true that even as we're sleeping, God can give us more than we could ever get ourselves by all of our labor. That's true. I'm not convinced that that is the best translation. It could be. I think... Truly, he gives his beloved sleep, is what Solomon is saying. And it's just meant to contrast these two pictures. What are we doing when we regularly deny ourselves the sleep that we need? When we are habitually piling up a sleep debt in order to spend more time at our work, legitimate work. We are almost surely depending too much on ourselves and probably trying to do too much. And we are refusing to receive a good gift of God, which he gives to those he loves. So that's something of the text here, verses 1 to 2. But I want us now to think of some vital lessons that we can draw out of this text. Some vital lessons here for us tonight. And the first is this. We must learn to labor in full dependence on God. So we must learn to labor in full dependence on God. We must labor. There's no warrant here to not build or to not watch or to be lazy. Diligence, hard work is not at all criticized by this text. So don't read it like that. Sloth is not at all encouraged in verse 2. God will not usually bless laziness, but diligence. And so you look at the Proverbs and you see that that is usually the case. The text assumes that the builders will labor. They will work at building. It's not saying, why are you working? Why are you building? It assumes that they will build, and it assumes that the watchman will be vigilant, that he'll be doing his job, that he'll be prepared. But they must not labor, and they must not watch in reliance on their own wisdom and strength and power and so on. They must, and we must, trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not upon our own understanding. In all of our ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct our paths. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. So the wise man or woman, the godly man or woman, 
lives in the knowledge that the success of any endeavor depends entirely on the blessing of God. This was true even of Solomon, whom God had given great wisdom and who had riches and who had all of these servants at his command. He too had to rely upon God's blessing for the success of anything that he was going to do. But also, the wise man or woman, the godly man or woman, understands that this truth is not a call to inaction just because we are dependent on God's blessing. Let me give a few examples. The farmer has to labor, breaking up the ground, as we heard this morning even, breaking up the ground, sowing the seed, doing all the things that he needs to do. But does he depend on all of that labor? No, he knows better that he is dependent upon God's blessing. God, who governs all things, who sends the rain and withholds the rain, may send a drought. So the farmer labors by all means, but he depends on God. The preacher must labor in the word. Dependence on God doesn't look like a lack of preparation or careless study. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's saying, Timothy, you're going to have to work hard. This isn't easy. You can't be lazy. But does the preacher depend on his labor and on his preparation? And how clear his notes might be or whatever it might be. No, he doesn't depend on that. He knows that the blessing must come from God. He doesn't put confidence in his skill. Or he ought not to. But he ought to labor. He ought to be diligent. We entrust ourselves to the Lord as our keeper. To give another example here. Psalm 121, another song of ascents. The Lord is our keeper. We look to him who made heaven and earth to keep us and protect us. But that is not a warrant to say, well, we're not going to give any thought to security at all of protecting our family, our loved ones. We don't do that. We don't say, well, I'm not going to buckle my seatbelt because the Lord is my keeper. That's presumption. That's testing God. We don't say things like that. We don't say, well, I'm not going to lock my doors because I trust in God and he's my keeper. All of these things. We're not going to have a watchman because we trust in God. So you see, dependence on God is not at odds with labor and activity and planning and wisdom and prudence. Failure to take these actions would be tempting God. I think we can also apply the principle here to the lawful use of medicine and modern medical advancements. I know this can be controversial, but we can apply it here to the lawful use of medicine. I realize there's unlawful use and there's things out there, technologies that the Lord would not approve of. We have to wrestle with these things. Difficult sometimes. We know that whether we are healed or not depends on the Lord. 
right? So we say, unless the Lord heals, the doctors labor in vain. The medicine is administered in vain. The surgery is all in vain. That's true. But does that rule out the legitimate use of medicine in full dependence on God? We've got to learn to put these two things together. This psalm, I believe, put them, puts them together. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. By all means, labor and build. And yet do it in full dependence on God. Parents seeking to raise up their children. A lot of work is required day after day. And if you've had kids or have them now, you know that that's true. God will not bless lazy parenting. He might, in his kindness and mercy and grace, in spite of our laziness, he might bless our children. But again, we do not presume upon that. We know that we have to labor in the home, that our homes might be what the Lord has called them to be and what we know he's equipped us to be as parents and to do as parents. But however much we labor, can we convert our children? No, you could do everything right, take every pain and pray and pray and we know that the Lord has to bless it. We must labor, and yet we must depend on God's blessing. So that's one application here. We must learn to labor in full dependence on God. But a second thing is that we must learn to seek God's guidance as well as his blessing in all of our labors. So we need to learn to seek his guidance as well as his blessing in all of our labors. So seek his guidance where? In the clouds? That feeling, that funny feeling? No. We seek it in his word. We seek it especially in his word. Now, David gave Solomon detailed plans for the temple. And where did David get those plans? He got them from God by revelation. So he gives these plans to his son Solomon. And he made all of these preparations for Solomon to build the temple. And what if Solomon had decided to change the plans a little bit, to alter the blueprints, and to do his own thing with the temple? We would say that is not a work that the Lord is going to bless. We must seek God's guidance. We must build what God would have us build, so to speak. And we must do it in the way that he would have us do it, whatever it might be. Now, sometimes this guidance is very clear. We have a command or a very obvious example. But often it might be truths, truths about God, truths about us as men, as sinners, truths about Christ, that we then have to labor and pray in order to apply to our daily lives. It might be general principles that we take and apply to our lives. So as we're reading through Proverbs and we have all of these principles, we can see how these things apply in all of these different scenarios. For example, we know that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. We know how he has dealt with us. We read it this morning, Psalm 103, and how he remembers 
our frailty, our weakness. He pities us. Should that affect how we parent? We apply it to our parenting and say we ought to be patient to our children, be patient with them. We ought to be merciful and gracious and seek to understand their frame and to know and to be gentle. That's just one example. So we seek God's guidance in how we're to do these things, how we're to build, how we're to parent, how we're to work, how we're to study, all of these things. To speak of our homes again, we have clear guidance in a text like Ephesians chapter 5. If you do build your home in this way, you will be building the sort of home God blesses. Husbands loving their wives, wives loving and submitting to their husbands, and then the children. So you see, there's guidance. We need to seek God's guidance if we're to be building the house that he would have us to build. We should ask questions like, are my priorities in the home God's priorities in the home? Are the things that I major on, are my children going to say, this is what dad was really, really majoring on. It was always about this. Well, what is it? Is it what God would have us major in? To give another example, as a pastor, I have very clear commands and even examples in the word of God Paul, Peter, but chiefly Christ, the head shepherd, we look to him. We're under shepherds. How are we to pastor? What am I to preach? What is the message I'm to bring to you? How's the church to be run? What are we to do? What should the priorities be here? We look to the word of God. If we're looking to the world and the wisdom of the world, or we're just coming up with our own ideas and not seeking God's guidance and direction. He's not going to bless that. Our labors will be in vain if they're not directed by the word of God. So we seek his guidance, especially in his word, but we also need to seek his blessing. To seek his blessing in all that we do. Before we're acting, whatever labor we're doing, during and after, seek God's blessing. And primarily in prayer is how we do that. We seek God's blessing in prayer. Humbling ourselves before him, acknowledging our need, and turning to God, coming to his throne of grace where we find grace to help us in time of need and where we find mercy. So in prayer... We commit everything to the Lord. I need to hear this again, and I think probably most of us need to hear this. Are we committing our work, whatever it might be, however mundane it might be, are you committing it to the Lord? Before you begin to say, Lord, I put it in your hands. I commit it to you. Bless these labors. Before you begin your day's work, you should do that. Seek God's blessing and help. As you're laboring, maybe as you're struggling to be patient with a coworker, as you're there home with your children and you're struggling to be patient, you stop and pray, Lord, give me patience. We're laboring in prayer in dependence on God. When the work's done, leave it in God's hands. What did Solomon do after he built the temple? He dedicated it to God in prayer. Lord, he prayed to him, 1 Kings 8, 22 and following. This is so true with sermon preparation and preaching. 
that it must be infused with prayer, all of it. The preparation, as any preacher comes up to preach, and as hearers, this applies that we need to be prayerful before, during, and after the preaching of God's word. And why is that? Because, yes, we plant, we water, God alone brings the growth. That's why we have to pray. We leave it in his hands. We don't be lazy. We make sure we get a good night's rest as much as we can. We come prepared. We do all of that, but we leave it in God's hands. So if, if you heard the sermon this morning, you say, that's a word for me. Pray about that. Say, God, write that upon my heart. Show me any way in which I need to change and give me grace to do it. That's, what, that's, that's how we commit it to the Lord's blessing and to his care. I was listening recently to a seasoned preacher. This is Ted Donnelly. You all know him. He's with the Lord now. But he was talking about a sermon that he preached, and he was very reluctant to share this, but he wanted to illustrate this point. And he was preaching on hell, and it was at a family conference, and he preached this message, and the response was unusual. The spirit was working. And they they stopped everything. They changed their plans for the evening. And many people were converted. People were praying and weeping over their children and the state of their soul. And then he preached that message again back home, thinking this is going to be, I think he said, this is going to be a real winner. And he said it was dull. It was flat. It just seemed like another ordinary evening. It's because this is, this is a supernatural work. We depend on the work of God and the blessing of his spirit. So we must learn to seek God's guidance as well as his blessing in all of our labors. A third point of application is that we must learn to embrace our creaturely limits. God-ordained creaturely limits and rest in God's providence and receive the gift of sleep. So we must learn to embrace our creaturely limits, to rest in God's providence, and receive the gift of sleep. We are weak. We are limited, and that's okay, because God made us that way. We're creatures. We are weak. And embracing this is both humbling and liberating. To know, I am but a man. I am weak. There are things I cannot do, many, many things, things I do not know, and I am often perplexed. And God doesn't expect it to be otherwise because we're creatures. It's liberating. It frees us from trying to do too much. I don't know where I heard this, but it was really encouraging to me, especially in regard to pastoral ministry, but... In Mark 8, 8, uh, 8, 8, I think, no, it's further on down, 14, 8, Jesus is speaking about the woman who poured the costly oil over his head. And there was a to-do about that, but Jesus said something there. He said, she has done what she can. And in the context, the advice was, pastor, labor hard, pray, leave it with God, And rest, you've done what you can. And that's really helped me. And some of you maybe need to hear that 
because you feel overwhelmed with all of the demands of life. You feel like, how can I possibly do all of these things? Maybe there are things that you need to let go, but you might also need to just hear this. You've done what you can, and the Lord doesn't expect you to do more than that. So leave it in his hands and seek his blessing. So we're weak, limited. But we also not just need to embrace those creaturely limits, but we need to rest in God's providence. Our Father is upholding everything and even governing everything in this universe which he has created. Think about the watchman here in our text. He can't always stay awake. He might fall asleep on the job because he's a creature. But the Lord, our keeper, never sleeps or slumbers. Psalm 121 again. The watchman can't see every danger. His vision is limited. But our keeper, the Lord, sees all things and knows all things. And so ultimately he says, Lord, I can't see everything. Think of Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is hammering home the message, do not worry. Do not worry. Why do you worry? He asks. But he says, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you will wear. And then he says, don't seek these things as the unbelieving Gentiles. Being frazzled and frantic and and as if it all depended on you. He says, by all means work, but rest in your father's care. Relying on him to give you your daily bread, even as you work for it. You know God has to bless my work and give the daily bread bread. So we rest in God's providence. But also we need to receive the gift of rest, especially daily sleep. Receive the gift of sleep. One of the surest signs of laboring and self-reliance is a regular minimizing of sleep. Getting less than you need in order to maximize your labors. That's what we see again, verse two. In vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. This is a word for me. I told you how this struck me, in college especially. But it strikes me again and again. This is one of the surest signs, I believe, of laboring and self-reliance when we do this. We need to learn how much sleep we really need and be honest. For years, I had a pretty low number. And guess what? That was pride. Oh, I just need this much sleep. I'm a tough guy. No. Learn how much sleep you need. It's probably more than you think. At least seven hours. At least seven hours in most cases. And then labor and plan to get that sleep. You need it. God is giving it to you as a gift. You're his creature. He knows what you need best. It's as if God's holding it out to us and saying, here, trying to get your attention as you're you're laboring and you're laboring and you're stressed and you're anxious and God is holding out this gift of sleep. Will you receive it? Some diagnostic questions. There's probably more, but first question is, To ask yourself, if you're in this category, why are you not getting the sleep you need? Now, you might say, I have terrible pain in my back and my legs. I can't get the sleep I need. That's not what the text is talking about. 
You might say, well, I have young children and trying to get to sleep, but I can't. That's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about the frantic, laboring, ceaseless, tireless work that would keep you up late and get you up early. So ask yourself, why are you not getting the sleep you need? And then ask, whose house are you building? That was the particular question the Lord used to strike me my first year of college. All right, Derek, you're working really hard. Whose house are you building? Is this for God or is this for you? Are you seeking to do things your way or God's way? And that leads into another question. Whose glory are you seeking? Whose glory are you seeking? So even now for me, why do I stay up late polishing a sermon rather than getting the sleep I need to be refreshed on the Lord's day? Whose glory? Sometimes it's hard to know this. Say, Lord, you've called me to labor and to seek excellence. But that can easily turn into a self-centered seeking of excellence. An excellent little quote here, a guy named Plumer on the Psalms. He says, God does not require us to kill ourselves or fret ourselves to death, but only to use lawful industry and then with quiet confidence in his providence to lie down and sleep. So we must learn to embrace our creaturely limits, rest in God's providence, receive the gift of sleep. And here's a final lesson for us. We need to learn to look upon whatever success and prosperity we might enjoy as a result of God's blessing. So whatever success or prosperity you might enjoy, whatever you can look at and say, that success, that increased, that went well, learn to look at that as a result of God's blessing. Some of you have the wonderful privilege of looking at children whom you've raised and they're walking with the Lord. You look at that and say, it's God's blessing. It's God's work that he has begun. The main principle of the text has application looking back as well as forward. So looking back, we look back and we give praise and thanks for blessings received. And we look forward in petition, seeking blessings from God. Remember the warning to Israel. This was last week in Deuteronomy 8, and this struck me as being applicable. Deuteronomy 8, and just listen to this. Verses 11 to 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, 
that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, when you've enjoyed all of this prosperity, you're in the promised land. You say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. He says, you're going to step back and look at it all and you say, look what I've done. Look what I've built. Look what I have accomplished. He says, verse 18, and you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So any blessing that we have, any blessing that we have, any success, any prosperity in anything, learn to look at it as a result of God's blessing. We can learn from Paul in this too. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You see, Paul knew that unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. And so he gave all glory to God, and so should we. And so may God help us all to know this and to take it to heart. Amen. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final hymn, All Glory to Christ. Our God and Father, we thank you for these moments to open up your holy word and to learn. We have labored and sown and we pray that you would add your blessing and bring growth. Lord, we pray that the truths, the simple truths that we've heard would be more and more lodged into our hearts, bearing good fruit. We thank you for this whole day and all of the scripture that we've been able to hear all of the truth that has come to us, and we pray that we would receive it. Pray that there would be none in here who do not receive the truth, that the seed would not fall on hard hearts. Lord, that it would produce much fruit unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.